For those of you that have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, you have a phone, <laughs> and you could use that, but just don't Google. Don't Google. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'd like to read verses 13 through 18 to get us started today. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you that you clarify things that have not yet happened, and you tell us what's coming in the future, that we might be aware of that, and that we might prepare ourselves for that, and that we might be filled with anticipation, especially for this event. Lord, we thank you for your word as clear as it is, and Father, we just pray that this morning um, you might bring it home to our hearts, that we might understand it in a fresh and a new way, maybe in a way that we haven't understood it before. And we'll give you all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start the sermon today, The Blessed Hope. If it were not so, I would have told you. That's the title of the sermon. I want to start it with the last verse of what I just read. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Hope is one of the most important things that people are able to possess. When people become hopeless, there's no place to turn, there, there's no help, there's no comfort, there's no anticipation of something good happening in the future because all hope has been lost. We named our church Beacon of Hope very, very intentionally because we know that there are many, many, many people that need hope. And today I want to take some time to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul as he gave instruction to a very young church in Thessalonica and told them how to comfort one another and how to give one another hope. He once wrote in his letter to Titus in chapter 2 that the grace of God which brings salvation had already appeared. And he said that that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Just a side note, some people have taught that nowhere in the Scripture does it say that Jesus is God. Well, that verse right there says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So it says right there, 
that he is God, and he is. Now the blessed hope is a joyful assurance that Jesus will return. That's what the blessed hope means, that he's coming back again. And we're waiting for this to happen right now. If we're a believer, that is what we wait for anxiously, not in a sense of worry, but in a sense with great anticipation. We're waiting for it to happen. Jesus said that he would return in John 14. And I love that passage where it says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I just love that. That's so ordinary, isn't it? And he's talking to his disciples right before he was to be crucified, and he's giving them hope. He says, hey, listen, if it wasn't going to happen, I would never tell you that. That's encouraging to me. The blessed hope is also referred to as the rapture. You see, the angels talked about Jesus' return after he ascended into heaven, you remember, in Acts chapter 1. As they watched him ascend into heaven, the angel said, what are you standing here staring at him for? In the same way that he's left, he will return. So we've got Jesus saying he's going to return. We have the angel saying he'll return. And all through, all through the epistles, we're told that he will return. Jesus could come back at any moment for the church. That's called the eminent return of Jesus Christ. Eminent means at any time. There are no no signs or symbols distinctly that tell us, oh, he's coming back next week. It means that he could come back at any moment right now with this thunder. It's not supposed to be thundering. It's just the mic? Oh, okay. What do I know? But he could come back at any time with or without thunder. Okay, I know there's going to be a shout and some other things we'll talk about in a moment. But that point that he could come back at any time should really, really affect us in the way that we live, right? I mean, we want to be found worshiping God when he returns. We don't want to be found doing something that we'd be ashamed of. So that's a great hope. It's a blessed hope. It's a rapture. Now, when the rapture takes place... All those who are believers in Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost all the way until the point that this rapture takes place, all those who have believed in Jesus Christ, whether dead or still alive, will be caught up to meet him in the air. That's the church. Everybody who is in Christ is referred to as the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. A very distinct group of people that began on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because on the day of Pentecost, something new began where Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to come in and dwell all who believe in him. Jesus Christ did not send the Comforter to indwell believers in the previous generations in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came upon people. He did not come to indwell them. But with the start of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended and remember the tongues of fire and so forth and so on that took place in Acts chapter 2? That's all talking about the fact that Jesus Christ sent the Comforter, another Comforter, to believers to indwell us until we reach heaven. It's a guarantee. It's his seal of promise that we will get to heaven. So when the rapture takes place, the bodies of believers who have died in Christ will be raised and joined with their souls. 
And then the bodies of those believers in Christ who are still living on the earth at that moment will be changed into a body like the Lord's resurrection body. We will be glorified. A change must take place. The believers raised from the dead and the believers living at Christ's return will meet the Lord in the air and be taken into heaven at that time. That's why it's called the blessed hope. Now this is exactly what our text this morning says will happen. And it will all take place in the twinkling of an eye. Very rapidly. How fast does an eye blink, right? You see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Now let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 and, and see what the Bible says about this most encouraging event that we're waiting for and which is our blessed hope. All this talk about the rapture and the second coming is as real as it is true. Now it's difficult for us to anticipate this. It's something we've never experienced, we've never seen. Although we did see that Elijah was taken up before he died in a chariot of fire. And we did see that Enoch was taken. The Lord took him. He, he walked as pleasing to the Lord and he was not. And so there are instances where people have gone to heaven before they died. So it's given to us in the scripture. But this is a new event. This is when the entire church is going to be millions of people. There are millions of believers, many who have passed on before us and many who are alive today all over the world. And this is talking about that event when they're taken up to heaven. So, they believed in the first century that within days or weeks at the most, Jesus would come back for them. In the first chapter of this book, Paul commends the Thessalonians for waiting for God's Son from heaven. Just turn back a page or scroll back a bit if you're on your phone to verse 10 of chapter 1. And it says, verse 9, For they themselves report about us, or report to us, what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So Paul's talking to them about their conversion, uh, the people, the believers in Thessalonica. And he says, You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. We say at Beacon of Hope, you've been served to save, or you've been saved to serve. Uh, you're not saved to just sit and wait for the return of Christ. You're, you're to be serving. Every member in the body should be serving in some way or another. You may not be preaching. You may not be teaching. You may not be singing on the, on the choir or the worship team. But you should be involved in the nursery, in helping with children's programs, and coming alongside and helping to keep the church looking nice. A any way you can serve. There's all sorts of gifts. Read chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And so Paul says that you were, you were saved to serve a living and a true God. And then the next verse he says, and to wait for his son from heaven. And to wait for his son from heaven. So right from the get-go, he says to wait from his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. There's a lot in that verse. It's very interesting. They were where we are. They were where we are. People, if you haven't been looking at the news lately, God bless you, you're probably happier than I am. The news is dismal. And that's only the news in America because 
it's blacked out from the rest of the world. We don't even hear what's going on in the rest of the world. It's all about us, right? We're American. But it's all bad news. Very, very little good news on the horizon. And there are so many signs of his return. If you read in the scriptures, there should be wars and rumors of wars, and there will be lawlessness. I don't know. You see lawlessness anywhere? I don't know. Wow. It's like he's got to be close. Now, I'm not predicting he's coming next week or next month or even today. I don't know. I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But it is way more prepared than it's ever been for his return. We have telecommunications now where the two witnesses that you read about in Revelation, who are they're slaughtered in Jerusalem. They're testifying for Jesus Christ during the tribulation, and they're killed. They're martyred, right? And in three days, they rise up again. And it's just amazing. And the whole world, when they're martyred, the whole world gives gifts to each other. How does the whole world know about that? Well, we've got satellite TV now. In the tribe that Mary and I worked in, at the end of the world, believe me, they're in loincloth striking rock against moss to get fire when we went into them in 1983. And, and, and they have satellite TV coming into their homes made out of bark with thatch roof. So it's everywhere. And, and we are so prepped for this event. It's never been this far before. So I can at least say it's far closer than it's ever been, right? That's safe. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost until the return of Christ will be part of that rapture. And remember how Jesus comforted his own disciples prior to his crucifixion when he finally dawned on them that Jesus was going to be killed. He said to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go right now to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, that you may be also. John 14. What a beautiful promise. That's comforting. And the truth is that Jesus is coming a second time, and it is real. And just as real as it was when he walked on the earth and men talked with him and walked with him, he will return again. It's for real. Even though you can't imagine what it might be like, where millions of people all across the world will be raptured to meet Christ in the air. And there's been all sorts of movies that have been done and books that have been written about what it might be like, but nobody knows what it's going to be like. I sure know it's going to be startling, very startling. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul was instructing the young church, and he was speaking into their deficiency of understanding. He was, com he was completing that which was lacking in their faith. They were really upset because some of their loved ones had died. And they were still living, and they wondered if their deceased loved ones were at a disadvantage because they had died, even though they were believers because they thought the Lord would come back and they didn't know what was going to happen to those that had died already. What would happen to them when Jesus returned and Paul gave them assurance that their believing loved ones would not be forgotten at the second coming? Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So the content of this, I just want to bring out about five things to you now. That when Jesus comes back for his church, it's going to be personal. It's going to be personal. Secondly, it'll be distinctly announced in a very unique way. Thirdly, it's going to be well organized. It's not helter-skelter. Fourthly, it's final. This is it for the believers in Christ. And fifthly, it's deeply comforting for us to be able to understand this, even ahead of time. So when I say it's personal, what do I mean? Well, it's the Lord himself that will be coming back. Jesus is presently seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's in a glorified body right now. Do you understand that? When he left and the disciples watched him leave, he was in his glorified body. Okay? And he is seated at the right hand of the Father now, and he's going to return again. This makes my mind go crazy trying to figure all this out and imagine what it must be like. And he's been like that for 2,000 years. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.20. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven just as he went up into heaven. It's he himself. He will come himself to gather believers to himself. And so this coming will be personal on two levels. Number one, it will be the Lord himself who will come. But secondly, it will be personal for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of us will be brought up into the clouds to meet Christ. This will be a fulfillment of the angelic prophecy of Acts 1, where they were told, why are you staring up in the sky? He will come back. Secondly, it's announced. The signal is from heaven, where the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the, and the trumpet of God. What mic is doing that? Mine. Sorry. I can just shout. Okay. This is at the moment this announcement comes. It's not announced like one year before so we can get ready. Today is the day of salvation. That's the only announcement you get. Today is the day of salvation. So if you don't know the Lord and you're listening to me and I, I sound like I'm speaking Greek, lean next to somebody who brought you and ask him, what's he talking about? You need to understand the gospel. And I'll try and give it two or three times today. Here while I'm preaching, as well as down at the baptisms. The gospel must be believed in order for you to be participating in this rapture. So this announcement, it's nothing like has ever happened before. The Lord's coming for his saints will be announced by a, a signal from heaven, and there's, there's much debate over the exact nature of the signal. Just as there is a mention of three sounds, there are at least three interpretations to what that signal from heaven might be. Some say that the three distinct sounds, a shout, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, they're all three distinct things that take place. Others say that there are only two sounds, the shout, which is described as the voice of an archangel, and then the trumpet of God. The third interpretation is that there is only one great signal from heaven, and that signal is described by these three phases or these three elements. I tend to agree with that. 
I think that's the way it is. It's just one great signal. It's, it just happens in the twinkling of an eye, so to speak. But this shout, it's the sound of a command. And it shows authority and urgency. It's like a general calling his troops together. It can't be determined by the text who the voice belongs to. I know a lot of people say, well, it says the voice of an archangel. It says like the voice of an archangel. But most would interpret it to be the Lord's voice. Remembering the Lord at Lazarus' tomb. Remember Lazarus who had died, Jesus' friend? And Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth. I like that. We're going to hear that with our ears if we're still alive. Jesus saying, come forth, and we're going to go and meet him in the air. That's a marvelous truth. The voice of an archangel, the only other place where the title archangel is used in the New Testament is in Jude 9 and refers to Michael. Nowhere in the scriptures do we have an instance of the voice of an archangel, especially in this capacity. Here, if we take it to be a singular component to the signal from heaven, the voice is awesome as one might expect from an archangel. It's obviously awesome, and it obviously ushers in a great event. But I think it's all together. The shout as a voice of an archangel and the trumpet. The trumpet of God is parallel to the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52, which tells us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That's the trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. So there you have the two groups there. The dead will be raised, and we will be, um, we will be changed, as in the twinkling of an eye. So both trumpets, the one here and the one in 1 Thessalonians 4, speak of the same time frame and the same group of people, both with the same result. Now note, this trumpet doesn't fit with other trumpets that are in the Scripture, and it's been no end of confusion to interpreters that don't believe in a literal hermeneutic, that don't take the Scriptures literally. We need to study to show ourselves approved, that showing ourselves approved means to be correct, to understand what the Scriptures say. There's trumpets in other passages. There's a trump of 1 Thessalonians 4.16, which we're talking about. That's the call all believers from Pentecost to that point up to meet Christ in the air. And there's a trumpet in Revelation 11.5. Now I'm going to tell you, it's not the same trumpet. But because some interpret it as the same trumpet, they become confused. The subjects differ. In Thessalonian passage, the church is in focus. But in a Revelation passage, it's the wicked world that is about to experience the wrath of God, seen in the seven bowl judgments. It's the announcement of seven bowls of judgment that are going to be poured out on the earth during the tribulation, which takes place after the rapture. The circumstances differ. The trumpet in Thessalonian marks the close of the church age, and the church is caught up to heaven. But the seventh trumpet of Revelation marks the close of the trumpet judgments and the beginning of the progressive series of horrific apocalyptic bull judgments. I'm sorry, I, I think I just mentioned that. It was the start of the trumpet, it's the end of the trumpet judgments, and the start of the bull judgments. You find that in Revelation 15 and 16, depict these bulls to have been collected 
and it's God's wrath for a long time, and now they are full to the brim and ready to be poured out, thus preparing the way for Christ's return to the earth, where his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The results are different as well. The trumpet sound in Thessalonians is the church snatched away and brought to the presence of the Lord, but in Revelation, the sound of the seventh trumpet only means further judgment is unleashed and the godless still living on the earth towards the end of the seven-year tribulation will experience that wrath. Now let me say something here. It's important. You know, um, for those of you that are following along, there's, there's a lot of talk about depopula- depopulizing um, the earth. We have too many people. We need, we, we need to lose about half of the people and everything. I want to tell you, you know, they're not far off. They're not far off. But it isn't going to be them that does it. It's going to be God. And he does it during this time called the tribulation. Now, just let me give you a little layout of prophetic history. A lot of churches don't teach about prophecy. Ours does. And we we love prophecy. So the next thing that's going to happen in a prophetic calendar, if you will, is the rapture. And it could happen at any time. It might happen today, like I said, right now. That'd be great. I hope it's after we eat. <laughs> okay? But, and maybe after the baptisms too, that'd be great. If the last one is baptized and then boom, we're all called up, that'd be awesome. But that's the rapture. When, after the rapture takes place, there's a period of seven years called the tribulation. Those seven years have other names. It's called Daniel's 70th week. Now, I'm not going to get into that. That'll make you nuts. I mean, there's a lot to this stuff. But Daniel's 70th week will begin. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time where God begins his work again with his people Israel that have basically been set aside ever since Jesus was crucified and they rejected him and he began to work with the church. He hasn't really worked with Israel. Jewish people can become part of the body of Jesus Christ. We call them completed Jews when they believe. He's not working with the nation of Israel right now. And he will begin to work with them again after the rapture during the tribulation period. And during that tribulation period, one-fourth of the population will die during the sealed judgments. One-fourth of the population of the earth is going to die during the sealed judgments. Revelation 6.8, it says it plainly. A quarter of the population on earth will die. That means there's three-fourths left, right? Well, then you take a, a one-third off that three-fourths left, they're going to die during the trumpet judgments, Revelation 9.15. Now, when you take one-third from the three-fourths left, you got half of the world's population is taken out in a very short order of time. And if you want to read about it, you can read about it in Revelation 6 through 18. I remember when I taught the book of Revelation at Beacon of Hope Church, we go verse by verse, and I had to do something different the last Sunday of every month. It's Communion Sunday because when we're going through Revelation 6 through 18, the tribulation period, and all the judgment and the wrath of God being poured out on the earth, it just got depressing. And so every Sunday when we had Communion Sunday once a month, I'd take something from the Gospels and just preach Jesus 
to encourage our hearts because it was so heavy treading through that period of time. But Revelation 6 through 18 will tell you all about what's going to come to the earth for that seven-year period. So that's the seven-year period. Now the trump of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, or 16 cannot be confused with Revelation trumpet. And there's another trumpet in the end of Matthew, Matthew 24, 31. That can't be confused with the trump in Thessalonica either. There's a similarity between the two instances of the trumpet sounding because in both cases, it's a call to gather a specific group of people. In Matthew, it's a specific group of people, but also in Thessalonians, specific group of people. But the subjects differ. In Thessalonians, the church is in focus, obviously. And then in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, it shows Jewish believers will be gathered together during that great tribulation period. And the circumstances differ. In Thessalonians, the trumpet sound shows believers being raised from the dead, but in Matthew, it ushers in the regathering of the elect. The elect, and they're living. Identified with Daniel 7.13 and Revelation 19. And the result is different. The trumpet in Thessalonians shows that the dead in Christ are raised and united with the living saints to meet the Lord in the clouds and thereby, thereby translated into heaven. And the trumpet in Matthew 24 shows the elect are all believers who are living, who were scattered, who are now regathered. They're different people. This is what I mean when I say that we have to be good students of God's word. Many people just read it generally. They just kind of gloss over the top and they go, ah, trumpet. It's all the same. That trumpet sounds, it's the last trumpet, we're all going to heaven. Not so. There are different instances you need to read the context. So I believe it's best to look at the whole thing of the outcome of the signal from heaven, that shout and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet as one signal that takes place in just a split second that alerts everybody to these things. But one thing is abundantly clear, and that is the signal from heaven will have a profound effect on believers. And it will affect both those who are alive and those who are dead at that time. It's such a profound effect that the dead will be raised and the living will be changed and both will be brought to meet Christ in the air. So it's a personal thing. It's announced, as I said, by this signal from heaven. And it's organized. There's two distinct groups. The dead will be raised first. The dead in Christ. Very distinct. Words matter. It says the dead in Christ and those who remain, and it's given that those who remain are in Christ, they will all be taken. So it's organized. Unique language is used here. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.10, it talks about the dead in Christ who are raised and the living believers together at the same time. It says that we're going to be caught up. That's where we get the, the idea of rapture from, to be caught up the fact of the rapture, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. The word rapture comes from a Latin word. It's a translation of the Greek word harpazo, harpazo. In 417, for Thessalonians, it's accurately translated to be caught up, snatched up, swept away, or carried off by force. Those are all meanings of the word harpazo in the Greek. The Greek word Harpazo could just as easily be translated in the English language as carried off by force. Well, I like that kind of force. I want to be carried off by that force. 
because it's to meet Christ in the clouds. Now, I want you to notice something that's very interesting in 4.17. It says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together and them uh, with them, the dead in Christ, to meet Christ the Lord in the air. You notice that Paul says we? He's including himself, and it shows that he was thinking of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We who remain. He thinks it could come at any time. I, I, I remember when I first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I was 19 years old, and <laughs> I didn't know a lot, but I got saved reading a book on prophecy, if you can figure. And the thing that got hold of me in that book on prophecy, it was called The Lake Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, was I read about the ultimate trip. Guess what it was talking about? The rapture. And my prayer to God that night when I first believed was, I was raised Catholic, so I knew all about God, knew about Jesus, knew he died on the cross, but I never connected the dots. But I realized I didn't need to be told I was a sinner. I knew my own life, and I was definitely a sinner. But I prayed that night. I just said, God, if you come back for your own, Jesus, if you come back for your own in this rapture, I'm not one of yours, and I want to be one of yours. I want to be with you in heaven. And he saved me right there. That was a prayer of faith. I wouldn't suggest everybody do that, but it worked for me. And I've been smiling ever since because I have assurance that I'll see Jesus. Whether I die first or whether I'm alive when he comes back, I will be with him in heaven because of his promise. You see, Paul fully expected the rapture in his lifetime. Finally, it's, it's final. We'll always be with the Lord. This is such good news. This is the last great step for the believer. It's the final step in our redemption, believers. The first was when we were delivered from the penalty of our sin. That's called justification, right? When we believe we can claim, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are, interestingly, in Christ. Those little words, in Christ, are really important. The second element is when we've been delivered, or as we are being delivered right now, from the power of sin over us. We now have the power to say no to sin. Before we believed, before we had the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we were overrun with sin. In fact, we loved our sin, and we looked for new ways to do sin. But once we're saved, we can say no to that sin, and that power has been broken. And then finally, and this is the deliverance that will come when we're with Jesus, is the deliverance from the very presence of sin. Can you imagine that? No gossip, no slander, no pain, no suffering, no death, no more. Nothing but joy with Christ forever. We will always be with the Lord. It's final. Now I just want to say the reason I preached this sermon this morning, I'm actually in Genesis uh, in my series on foundations at church, but I wanted to bring you comfort. And this is comforting. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. As the world gets increasingly dark and there are wars and rumors of wars and nature seemingly out of control. I don't know if it's just the media, but it seems to me there's been an awful lot of flooding, a lot of, a lot of forest fires all over the world. Okay, Europe's burning. 
Canada's burning. Parts of the states are burning. Of course, Hawaii had their fire. So all these things are coming upon us. And if ever there was a time, and lawlessness, like I said, if ever there was a time we need hope, it's now, people. And the only hope that is lasting is the hope in Jesus Christ. Let me comfort you with these words. The rapture is real, and it's imminent, and it's very near. Are you certain that you're one of Christ's? Because that's why Beacon of Hope exists. That's the only reason I'm here and still preaching, is to give hope to people that they will be one of Christ's own and they can be with Him. Now, I had a whole lot about the pre-trib and the mid-trib and post-trib because there's, there's people that believe that that rapture is going to take place in the middle of the tribulation. Well, that wouldn't be good news. Paul would be telling the Thessalonians, okay, you guys, you're going to have to really... Tahan, that's an Indonesian word. You're going to have to really hold on tight for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but then I'm coming for you. Plus, they would know when he's coming. If they knew they were going to go through the first three and a half years, they'd be waiting for that point because the rapture would take place then. That's what mid-tribulation people believe. I don't believe that. We're pre-trib. It happens before the tribulation. And there's post-trib people. They, they believe the church will remain on the earth throughout the great tribulation. Well, that's greatly comforting. Okay? Half of the world's population is going to go, I hope I'm part of that half that stays. That's not comforting, but that's what post-tribulation people believe. The church is going to be on the earth through the great tribulation. It will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air at the end of the tribulation. And, and this is something that's really interesting. In, in Revelation 19, it says that, that Christ will come on a white horse and his saints will be with him. So the ones who believe in post-tribulation, and bless their hearts, they're believers, they just don't understand the scriptures really well. They think that we're all going to go to be with Jesus in the air and then come right back down with him. Well, when does the Bema Seat take place? The Bema Seat is when we will receive rewards for works done within the body. My personal belief through reading the scripture is that takes place during the seven-year tribulation. We're in heaven and we're receiving the rewards for the works done in the body while we were believers on earth. And then after we're all done with that, then Christ returns at the end of that seven years and he comes with the saints in glory. Read it in Revelation chapter 19. So we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Now the bottom line, there are people who differ, and I just said that. There are mid-tribulationists, there are post-tribulationists. <laughs> there are actually people that believe we're in the millennium right now. Okay, If you know anything about the millennium, au contraire. I beg to differ with you. If you read about the millennium when Christ is reigning from his seat in Jerusalem as, as the heir to David's throne, some believe that we're in that period right now. I, I personally don't believe that. But the truth of the matter is, is we can differ, but we should not separate over these things, beloved. We can have discussions and talk about these things, but this is not a reason to separate from other believers because of these things. Here's one dear commentator calling for the reality of the love of Christ and for focus on love for one another and holy living in light of the debate as to the time of the rapture stated this. Advocates of respective views must avoid attributing unworthy motives, demonizing others that believe differently than us. 
The world will do that to us. We don't need to do that to each other. We need to study the Scriptures and come to our conclusions. It is appropriate and proper that diligent efforts should be given to the study of evidence for chronology of the end-time events, but these efforts must not be allowed to lead to a state where the sanctifying power of this blessed hope for daily living is lost sight of because the Scriptures clearly teach us to love one another. And this is something where Beacon of Hope strives to bring Christians together. Um, we, we don't want to um, have enmity between believers. We need to pull together. The world will do a good enough job separating us out and, and persecuting us. We don't need to do it to each other's. And this is one area. Calvinism and Arminianism is another area. We don't need to be fighting over those things, folks. Um, it's, not, it's not something that we should be separating ourselves from one another in. Do I have a stance? I do. Do you have a stance? You should. But you need to know what the Scriptures say. Don't just follow along. Study the Scriptures for yourself. Listen to these words and be comforted. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when He appears, Jesus, we will be like Him, meaning we'll have glorified bodies even as His body has been glorified, because we will see Him just as He is. And then it says this, and everyone who has this hope, this blessed hope, fixed on Him, purifies Himself just as He is pure. So whatever perspective you have on end times, it should purify you. You should be living holy lives. You should be mortifying the sin that so easily entangles us as believers. And we should be helping each other to mortify that sin and giving encouragement and hope to one another and loving one another as we move forward. So those are the words I have for you. I hope they were encouraging to you. And um, yeah. We'll get back to Genesis next time we're together. Let's have a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that everyone sitting here today that can listen and hear, and I, I think it's actually going to be um, online as well. I pray, Father, that everyone listening to these words would really check and examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. Lord, it's so important. And, and those of us that have been in church for a long time, Father, just going to church doesn't make us a believer, doesn't make us indwelt by your Holy Spirit. There is such a thing as just understanding things intellectually or just going along, Father. That is not true, believers. A changed heart and then behavior that has changed and, and behavior that is, is becoming less sinful and more holy as we live out the Christian faith. That is true salvation. So, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word and we thank you for this lovely group of folks that have gathered here. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.